0: Which, if you like uh, to turn in your Bibles to the text that I'll be reading uh, this morning, please do so by turning to Luke chapter 19, Luke chapter 19. Uh, so um, we're going to pick up our reading, verse 28, or, or begin our reading, verse 28, and read down through verse 40 uh, as we begin uh, this morning, uh, Holy Week. And, and so Holy Week is this, this time, of course, that we consider Uh, The events uh, leading up to uh, Easter Sunday, to the resurrection of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, and 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 because of of this, I I usually will take, and I've done this every year, of course, uh, some time from whatever I'm I'm preaching on normally, uh, to preach a sermon that specifically focuses on these themes. And so today, I'm preaching a series. This is a three-part series for today, Palm Sunday, uh, Monday, Thursday, Easter Sunday, that I've entitled uh, "Because of Easter." And the the three sermons that I'll be preaching have this idea of because in it. And so because of Easter, we're going to talk today about um, this idea that because he's king. And and then on Thursday, we're going to talk about because he died as we reflect upon uh, the events of Good Friday. And then on Easter Sunday, of course, uh, we're going to talk about because he lives, because he lives. Because he's king, because he died, and because he lives. So the events of Palm Sunday, as, as most of you know, uh, those events are the triumphal entry. And the triumphal entry account uh, is found in all the gospel accounts. Uh, it's, it's there in one way or another in all of the different gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Uh, but today I wanna look at the events of the triumphal entry as it's found in the gospel of Luke. And so we begin our reading at verse 28 <clears throat> and I'll read down through verse 40. And when he had said these things, He went on ahead, going up to Jerusalem. And when he drew near to Bethphage and Bethany, at the mount that is called Olivet, he sent two of the disciples, saying, Go into the village in front of you, where on entering you will find a colt tied, on which no one has ever sat, yet sat. Untie it, and bring it here. If anyone asks you, Why are you untying it? You shall say this, The Lord has need of it. So those who were sent went away and found it just as he had told them. And as they were untying the colt, its owners said to them, Why are you untying the colt? And they said, The Lord has need of it. And they brought it to Jesus, and throwing their cloaks on the colt, they set Jesus on it. And as he rode along, they spread their cloaks on the road. And as he was drawing near, Your disciples, and he answered, "I tell you, if these were silent, the very stones would cry out." And this is God's word. May the Lord bless the reading and the preaching, and of course the hearing of His word this morning. I imagine that some of you, if not many of you, are, are familiar with the, the name Philip Yancey. Uh, Philip Yancey is, a, is an author; has written many books, and. And, and one of the books that Yancey wrote, he wrote it years ago, it was a, a, a wonderful book called The Jesus I Never Knew. And in that book, The Jesus I Never Knew, he, he sort of tracks through the life of Jesus and he explores things that, that at times, I mean, we may not necessarily and easily think about. And one of those was this triumphal entry scene. And, and he says, you know, this, that this, this scene, this triumphal entry scene, uh, in, in many ways, from the perspective of the, the way the world would view this, it, it wouldn't sort of stand out as being that magnificent and that, that triumphant. And, and he describes what it would have been like, and he imagines a, a Roman soldier uh, galloping over on his horse and, and watching the processions and, and thinking, as a Roman soldier who had been in Rome, that he had seen, quote-unquote, real triumphal entries, Right? because he had seen the the mighty um, uh, Roman uh, general uh, after a victorious battle and he would be in this sort of golden uh, chariot with these mighty stallions pulling it and and behind it would be all of the the, the army, all of his army and they would be marching in sync and then behind them sort of pulling up the rear uh, would be uh, all the prisoners of the defeated enemy and all of them that had been enslaved in a way, put in chains. And then Yancey, he writes this in, in terms of reflecting on that. He says, yes, there was, a, there was a whiff of triumph on Palm Sunday. But not the kind of triumph that might impress Rome. And not the kind that impressed the crowds in Jerusalem for long either. And then he asked this question, which is the question that I want us to consider this morning as we look at this text. What manner of king was this? That's the question. What manner of king was this? Now, what we're going to do today is we're going to look at this, this passage, and, and really it's parts, right? And, and as we, we will see, there are actually three parts to this particular text, And the parts can be spoken of and looked at in these three ways. We see, first of all, the preparation. Secondly, we see the procession itself, right? And and then thirdly, we see the protest, okay? So we see the preparation, the procession, and the protest. And as we look at each of these, they're gonna help us to, to better understand this king and what kind of king he is and I believe how all of us should respond to him. Now, the, the passage begins with the preparation. That's the first thing that I want you to see. And, and the preparation, actually, it's, it's about Jesus and, and his preparation for entering into, uh, into the holy city, entering into Jerusalem. But in some senses, as we think about this as Jesus' preparation to enter into the holy city, it's also a culmination of what Jesus has been doing for quite some time. If you look back at, at, uh, if you have your Bibles open, you can turn to it. But if you look earlier in the book of Luke, in Luke chapter 9, in verse 51, it says this, that when the days drew near for him, talking about Jesus, to be taken up, he set his face to go to Jerusalem. Now, what that that verse is describing is is Jesus knowing that his his time is near. He knows that that his death is near. And so at that particular time, knowing that his death is near, what the text tells us in Luke chapter 9, verse 51, is he set his face, which means that there is intentionality and determination to, to make his way to Jerusalem because he knew that this would be the place where he was put to death. Now, what you see in Luke chapter 9, verse 51, in Jesus sort of setting his face towards Jerusalem, that actually really culminates in what we see in Luke chapter 19, beginning in verse 28, again, where it says, and when he had said these things, he went on ahead going up to Jerusalem. So through this big chunk of the gospel of Luke, Jesus has set his face, he's determined to make his way to Jerusalem. Now, as we look at the passage before us today, he's pretty much there. In other words, he's only a couple of miles away. He's at Bethany, Bethface, just a couple of miles away from Jerusalem. And so what does Jesus now do as he's about to enter into the city knowing what is going to face him? Well, what this passage helps us to understand is that he actually prepares. And Jesus' preparation is to do something symbolic. And to to bring this donkey to him. And that's what we see, if you notice in verse 29 down through verse 34. It says, when he drew near to Bethphage and Bethany at the mount that is called Olivet, he sent two of the disciples saying, go into the village in front of you where on entering you will find a colt tied on which no one has ever yet sat. Untie it and bring it here. If anyone asks you why are you untying it, you shall say this, the Lord has need of it. So those who were sent went away and they found it just as he had told them. And as they were untying the colt, its owner said to them, why are you untying the colt? And they said, the Lord has need of it. Now, one of the things that I want you to notice about this particular passage is that all that is happening here is being orchestrated by and, and actually set up by Jesus himself. Therefore, there is great intentionality in this. I mean, this isn't, this isn't the disciples looking, looking at Jesus, and Jesus has become winded and tired, and they, they think, well, maybe, maybe we need to get a donkey for Jesus. That's not what this is. It's, it says at the end of verse 29, he sent two of the disciples. I mean, Jesus, he sent two of the disciples. He was the one that sent them into to this city, into probably it was Bethany, to find this, this cult that was was tied up, and to untie it, and 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 when they were bringing it back to him, if the owners of the cult were of the cult questioned whether uh, why they were take why he was taking the donkey, they would say the Lord has need of it. This is all of Jesus. Now scholars debate. Um, whether this, this scene, this particular scene is one where Jesus had prearranged this, which he could have because he had been in Bethany before. Uh, don't forget that Bethany was the home of Mary, Martha, Lazarus. Remember, Jesus had raised Lazarus from the dead. This is where he is right now. He's gone back to Lazarus to make his way to Jerusalem. So Jesus could have prearranged this. He could have gone into town. He could have set up for this donkey colt to be there. But, but the others will look at this, and this is probably where I land. I don't know if it matters that much. But this is a, a scene of his, his supernatural omniscience, his, his, his knowledge of what is happening. The reason I, I, I have that particular understanding of this is because he seems to know exactly what's going on. He knows all that's happening in the town. He knows what to do, all those different things. So it seems to be Jesus' knowledge. Whatever place you land on that, I'm not sure that is the ultimate thing that matters. What matters is this. It's what he tells them to say. The Lord has need of it. You need to hear those words. The Lord has need of it. Now, this forces us to begin to understand. This is about something Jesus is intentionally doing. Now, when they say that, of course, those are the words that that get the owners to release the donkey. But I want you to think about this in in a deeper way. I want you to ask the question, because I think this is the point that is being made here. Why did Jesus have need of it? Why? Why did he want that donkey to be brought to him? And he does it. It's not the disciples that that's come up with this idea. It's Jesus. Why the donkey? Now, in Luke's version of the triumphal entry, we, we actually, we don't see that mentioned. But you, you know, in all the other versions, you begin to see more of this. And in Matthew's version of the triumphal entry, this is in Matthew 21, after the cult, Matthew's version indicates it's the cult and the mother that are brought to Jesus. But it says this. This is in Matthew 21, verses 4 and 5. This took place to fulfill what was spoken to the prophet, saying. And then what does he do? He quotes from Zechariah chapter 9, verse 9, which we use in our call to worship today. And it says, say to the daughters of Zion, behold, your king is coming to you, humble." And mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a beast of burden. Now, when you you think about Jesus and all the intentionality in this passage, him asking them to bring, to go and get the donkey, and how to get the donkey, and that the Lord has need of it. We we can't miss this whole idea that that Jesus here is, is symbolically bringing some clarity as to who he is. That he is the one ultimately to fulfill this Old Testament prophecy that he is the one who comes in the line of David, that their king is coming. I don't know if you know this, but you can look back in the, in the, in the passage of scripture that deal with that David and some of his immediate uh, kingly descendants who actually rode on donkeys. That was their royal animal. It was a donkey. And now here is Jesus, and he wants, he wants him to bring this donkey at this point, for him to ride into the city, because it is a clear indication that he is the one who ultimately fulfills all the hopes and all the promises given to Israel, the King that is to come. But what's interesting about the Luke passage, and this I think this is it's, it's telling about some of the things that Luke does, is that in Luke, Luke has an emphasis throughout his gospel on, on the poor and the needy and the broken. And in Luke's account, it doesn't mention the the, the fulfillment of the prophecy. It doesn't directly mention that, even though it is true. The king is coming. But all Luke mentions is the donkey. The donkey. This beast of burden. This insignificant animal. And why is that the case? Because it reveals something about this king. That this king is radically different than the kings of this world. That this is a king who comes in humility... And he enters into Jerusalem in humility because of why he was going to Jerusalem. In fact, Paul reminds us of something important here. When Paul tells us that this king would humble himself, and then in Philippians chapter 2, verse 8, it says, by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on the cross. What this is helping us to see is that Jesus' very preparation of entering into the city was an indication as to who he was. He is indeed king. He is the king in fulfillment of all the promises and all the hopes of the Old Testament. But he is also the king who would humble himself and give his life for his people. Now, that's the preparation. Now, when you look at the the next thing that we see here, which is the procession, you also begin to see more. And so it's not just that the donkey becomes sort of enacted symbolism to reveal who Jesus is. Everything that then happens and transpires as Jesus makes his way into the holy city and all the response, which Jesus never puts down, which Jesus never tells them to not do or not say, all of that continues to reveal who he is and how we are to view this one on this Palm Sunday. I, I don't know if you, you have, have um, any of you seen the, the, the Netflix television show called The Crown? Have any of you seen that? It's, it's excellent. It's about, the, it's, a, it's a drama, it's, it's fictionalized, uh, but it's about the British royal family. And it, it sort of tells the story of, of Queen Elizabeth from really childhood uh, on up through, you know, her kids and her grandkids and all, all of that. And it's still, it's still a show on. But in the first season of, of um, The Crown, uh, it, it talks about her coronation. And, and of course, you know, the, the coronation was, was opulent, and the show shows this. It was, it was opulent and full of pageantry and pomp and, and all of these kind of things, wealth and all of this. Uh, but remember, her, her uncle, Edward, uh, who had abdicated the throne, uh, he was watching the, the coronation and all that was going on. And, and he, he, in the, the television show, he jealously said something. But it, it's interesting what he says, and I want you to think about this, and I want you to think about it in relationship to, to Jesus' entrance. But here's what he said about the coronation of Queen Elizabeth. He said, pull away the veil. And the veil he's describing is the veil of this this coronation and all that it is. Pull away the veil. And what are you left with? An ordinary young woman of modest ability and little imagination. But wrap her up like this. Anoint her with oil. And hey, presto. What do you have? A goddess. Now, what is he talking about? He's talking about the the, the opulence being the veil, right? It's an ordinary human being. It's an ordinary person. But you you wrap all of the stuff around her, if you will. This is what he's saying. All the stuff around her, all of the wealth and all of the pomp and all of these things. And it takes an an ordinary human being and sort of exalts her. It lifts her up to majesty, the almost godlike status, right? Now, I want you to think about that in, in relationship to Jesus for a moment. Because Jesus had a, he had a veil. He had a veil. Now, what's interesting about the veil around Jesus in his life is that, that that veil wasn't opulence. That veil wasn't pageantry. The veil wasn't wealth. It wasn't any of those kinds of things. In fact, the veil that was around Jesus was a, was a veil of humility. And when you look at all the things that he tells His his disciples and any people that he interacted to do, it was a veil of silence, right? He constantly was calling people to silence, to not reveal who he was, to not say who he was. He came into this world, and we need to remember this, the Son of God, fully God and fully man. He came into this world as the Christ, the anointed one of God. He came into this world as the King. And yet all of that was, was constantly veiled right? So that if, if you remember, you probably remember this from Matthew's account of it, but, but Jesus, but, but, uh, not Jesus, but Peter, uh, Peter actually confessed who he is. And in Luke's version of it, this is back in chapter 9, he confessed that he is the Christ of God. So, so this is chapter 9 of Luke. Peter knew who he was, the Christ of God. And do you remember what Jesus said immediately afterwards? This is verse 21 of Luke 9. And he strictly charged and he commanded them, to tell this to no one. In other words, constantly, there was this veil of silence. Now, what you see in the procession, right? And even though it would have been true, and and I think Yancey is right, that from the perspective of the world's ideas of these triumphal processions, of the, the world or Rome's idea of what that would look like, this would have been hardly anything. But what I want you to understand is within the biblical text, what you're seeing here is that this veil of silence... It is pulled back so that it becomes very clear in terms of the response to him. This is indeed the king. This is who he is. He is the king. And if you notice the text beginning in verse 35 down through verse 38, this is where he says, it, where it talks about it. It says, And they brought it to Jesus. This is the cult, right? So this is the, the, the one thing, the royal animal. There's all that symbolism. The the colt itself, the royal animal, the donkey. So they bring it to Jesus. And throwing their cloaks on the colt, they set Jesus on it. And as he rode along, they spread their cloaks on the road. As he was drawing near, already on the way down the Mount of Olives, the whole multitude of his disciples began to rejoice and praise God with a loud voice for all the mighty works that they had seen, saying, Blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest. Now, think about what's being, being said here. All right, here's the donkey, right? The, the very indication, the very fulfillment of Zechariah 9.9. 9. And they, they bring him to Jesus. And Jesus has set all that up to bring the donkey to him. And then they, they, cl- they cover it, which is sort of a, a form of a makeshift saddle with their cloaks. And then note what it says. It says, they sat Jesus on it. It's, it's not even it's a, a, an image of Jesus sort of climbing up on it. It is a picture of them lifting him up and and putting him on that donkey. And then what do they do? They they spread out in front of him, their their cloaks in front of them, almost as if, and we've all seen this, and and dignitaries in the red carpets today kind of coming out in front of them. They lay their cloaks out and they praise him with all all of this homage homage to to him and praise to him. And then they take Psalm 118, verse 26, and they specifically apply it to Jesus. In verse 38, blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord. Now, if you know the scene, if you know the triumphal entry from other texts, you also know they did more. The reason we call this Palm Sunday is because what do they do? They cut branches of palm, they laid them out before them, and they also shouted out, Hosanna to the son of David. All of that is about what? Recognizing that this king has come into this city to save, to deliver. Now, something that they, and even his disciples, they missed and you know this, they missed what his deliverance would offer. They missed that this king coming in humility, all the indicators are there, but they missed it. Coming in humility, they missed the ideas of the suffering servant. And so when they were crying out, Hosanna, save us, deliver us, which was language, and even the palm branches, language of, of sort of nationalistic intent, it's, it's this idea of deliver us, they wanted that. But what they wanted is they wanted this one to deliver them from, from the Romans and that kind of tyranny. But ultimately, this king that was coming, and this is the thing we have to understand about Jesus. This king that was coming into Jerusalem to do exactly what he did by that Good Friday, was a king that removed from us an oppression that no other human king could ever remove. It's not just the oppression of a nation. It's the oppression of our sin and of our guilt and of death. All of those kinds of things that no human king that has ever lived could remove. And Jesus comes in, and they rightly say, Blessed is the king. Hosanna to the son of David. Because this king comes to save. And to provide for us what no one else can. Now what's interesting about the flow of this text is this. You see the preparation, you see the procession, you see these things clearly happening, all giving indication as to who Jesus is, but we also see something else. And this is the third thing. You see the protest. And the protest that you see even here is the counterpoint. It's the counterpoint. It, it, it gives us something of a picture that, that what's happening here with all of this celebration, it, it's, it's going to be short-lived. And so in verses 39 and 40, he goes on to say, and, and some of the Pharisees in the crowd said to him, teacher, rebuke your disciples. Stop there for just a second. So note, it's only some of the disciples. I mean, some of the, the Pharisees. It's not all of them. But the some represent more of what is going to happen. The some represent the whole. They represent what the religious establishment is going to be, uh, with, how they're going to respond. It represents how, how ultimately the crowds are going to respond. And how do the Pharisees respond to all of this? All of what's happening now. I think, in, in, in one regard, they, they see it. They get it. This is a proclamation of a, of a king. This is a, a king that is coming to, to, to do so. I think they get it, but they don't believe it. They see it as blasphemous. That's why it says, rebuke them. The, the Pharisees aren't concerned about the Roman soldiers being upset about this. What they're basically saying when they say rebuke him is they're saying this who you say you are, you are not. You are not the king. You are not the Messiah. You are not the son of God. And Jesus responds. And, and if, you, if, <laughs> if you talk about a veil of silence being absolutely, utterly removed, here's how you do it. You listen to what they just said. And you say, Dude. If these people stop shouting, them rocks are going to cry because this is who I am, right? The rocks are going to shout because this is why I came. This is who I am, and I'm going to show it to you right now. And, and what's so interesting about it is when you think about this idea of the, the rocks shouting out, I mean, it helps us to, to understand this, it further the significance of Jesus because it, it's, it, it's not just that Jesus came for individuals. He came for everything. He came for the world. There's a, there's a cosmic reality to the coming of Jesus, this king, into the world. When he says the rocks are going to shout out, what he's basically saying is that my coming into the world is going to set a broken, fallen world aright. That the whole of reality is going to be set aright because of what I am about to do. Now, those few Pharisees, they didn't get it. And within a week, as you know, the cries of Hosanna, the cries of blessed be the king, became the cries of the crowd to crucify him. They didn't get it. And because they didn't, what they ultimately didn't get is the peace that only this king can bring. And no other king. Only this one. You know, it's, it's something that's really kind of interesting about this passage, and I'm going to wrap up by talking you through this a little bit. It, this idea of, of Jesus being the, 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 the source of our peace, Right? If you remember the annunciation of Jesus by the angels, and, and remember they come to the shepherds, and they say to the shepherds who Jesus is, and then they begin to praise and worship God. And, and we read this in Luke chapter 2, verse 14, where it says, glory to God, this is their praise, the angels praise, glory to God in the highest, and on earth peace among those with whom he is pleased. So note the, the praise, it's to glory to God, and there is a sense there that it said, peace on earth. Jesus comes in this world to glorify God and to bring peace, right? But when you look over at the, now the annunciation of Jesus' triumphal entry, so there's the annunciation of his coming, and now there's the annunciation of him going into Jerusalem. That's what the triumphal entry is. And at the end of verse 38, it says, peace in heaven and glory in the highest. Not peace on earth. Peace in heaven. Now, on the one hand, that tells us the source of peace. We are never, and I'm telling you this, you're never going to find it outside of that peace. You're never going to find it. I don't care what you do. I don't care where you look for it. You are never going to find it outside of that peace. But in addition, I think when this says peace in heaven and not peace on earth, it foreshadows exactly what is going to happen in Jerusalem. Because what do they do? They reject their king. They reject the only one who could bring peace. And this is why when Jesus now, he gets to the place where he can look over the city, in verses 41 and 42, it says, and when he drew near and he saw the city, he wept over it, saying, would that you, even you, had known on this day, now notice the language, the things that make for peace. But now... They're hidden from your eyes. Jerusalem was eventually judged and destroyed 73 AD. The one who came to bring peace. and now Jesus weeps because he knows what they're going to do, is reject the very means of peace. To all of us who are here this day, let me ask us: Do you know the things? that would make for peace. Do you know this king? Because there's there's two realities from from heaven. There's There's a rejoicing over those who are saved and there is a weeping over those who are not. Do you know the king? I pray this morning that if you don't, your heart would be drawn to this Savior, to this King, to the only one who can truly free you from your bondage. Let's pray. Father, we thank you uh, for your coming. We are reminded in this text of, of what it means that you are King And that you've come into this world, Lord, as king, to save your people. It's not the way that we normally think about it. It's not through the means of power and force and armies. But through your humility and your death, your suffering and your cross. And it is through that, Lord, that reality that is so different than anything we witness in this world that those who put their faith and trust in you can find hope and salvation and freedom and peace because in that death Lord you took our sin and you conquered it as you conquered the grave and so this week Lord as we move into it and we consider the events of holy week both your entrance but then Lord your rejection uh, we are reminded of a peace that that passes all understanding that can only be long to those who submit to you and Lord as a people as a congregation as individuals here today may we by faith put our hope and our trust in Jesus thank you Lord for um, this time at the table as we come because as we do come to the table today we are reminded Lord of all that you have accomplished for us we're reminded of your death your shed blood, and of the hope that is ours until you return again. And so Lord, set apart these elements as we partake of them for your holy purpose. Use them, Lord, to encourage our faith, to draw us closer, to build us up, and to give us strength in Jesus. You are indeed the King of kings and the Lord of lords. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. This morning, uh, I want to invite you